Welcome to Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. In this month's podcast, we'll review how to submit an Archimedes, a critical appraisal topic on I-squared, that's related to systematic reviews, and two clinical questions. So, as you'll know by listening to this, Archimedes is the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. The way it works is that clinicians have a clinical problem. They then decide what the main clinical question is and format that in PICO style, that is, patient, intervention, comparison and outcome. Now, actually, if it's not to do with an intervention, the I and C bits don't need to be an intervention and a comparison. They could be a test and the gold standard, or some prognostic factor that you want to know just how good is it at determining the prognosis of a particular condition. But it's that sort of idea. You take the patient group, the thing of interest, something you might want to compare it to, and the key outcomes that you'll be assessing when you do the analysis. With that PICO, you then go to electronic databases and sometimes paper databases as well, and search through to find clinical research that is best suited to answer your type of question. You then appraise those papers and narratively draw that together in a synthesis that comes away with a clinical bottom line or two. That is, an actual answer to the question that was set in the first place. The evidence may be inconclusive or contradictory or difficult, but there's still something needs to come out of it. You can't just wander away from a patient going, well, there's no good evidence, is there? I can't do anything. So, what Archimedes aims to do is help people through that process. We think that most of the time the answers will be right, and even if they're not absolutely right, they'll be better than knowing nothing. This month, we have two clinical questions, one from Dr. Harleman and C up in Aberdeen in Scotland. They set the scenario of a five-year-old who presents with an itchy and swollen lip after ingesting peanuts, and the mum that comes in, very worried about peanut allergy, also wants to know if there's anything that you can do, either by clinical or by blood tests, to predict what the severity of another reaction will be. Well, that group went away and they looked through three separate electronic databases, got 16 different pieces of information, 14 of which are actually in the PubMed database in the first place, but found two extras from other places and drew together these studies. Each study had between 24 and 100 patients in it, that is, the prospective or the retrospective cohorts, some of them based in the community, some of them based in oral food challenges. And there was one outstanding paper, outstanding in the sense that it was well away from the others, of over 5,000 people. However, this was a community-based survey and had no sort of verification of either the prognostic factors, the exposures, or indeed the outcomes. As you'll know, traditionally asthma and older patients have been associated with more severe reactions. But when the studies that looked at food challenge were examined, there was not a relationship to asthma and not a relationship to age. Now, of course, it might be that in order to get into the food challenge studies, those patients who'd had a previous severe anaphylaxis or had very severe asthma were excluded from entering those food challenges. But it certainly doesn't appear to be a very strong link. Similarly, the idea that if you'd had a previous severe 
reaction you are likely to go on and have more severe reactions might well be true but just because you've had a mild reaction first time round it doesn't mean that you won't go on to have a severe reaction about 10% of those who had just skin manifestations the first time went on to have a further anaphylactic response the blood tests also fared quite poorly skin prick testing was not an indicator of severity Although the median levels were higher than those that were more likely to have severe consequences than those who didn't, the overlaps were huge and it wasn't clinically discriminating. And whilst a specialist test of component IgE testing for peanut allergens holds some promise, it's certainly nowhere near the level that could be used in clinical practice. So, their bottom line is that whilst these things might be interesting and are certainly worth investigating further, at the moment we don't have a good way of judging severity. Taking a careful history, doing skin prick testing or specific IgE testing as per the NICE guideline is a good way to diagnose things, but it doesn't predict severity, particularly it doesn't predict a lack of a very severe outcome. And so allergen avoidance and provision of appropriate medications is the key. The other clinical question also relates to an extremely common situation. This group, including Drs. Letherby, Syria and Bockenhauer from Homerton, Chelmsford and Great Ormond Street in England, set the question of a two-year-old who's come in after diarrhoea and vomiting, got really quite dehydrated and has admitted and his blood show that he's in acute renal failure or has acute kidney injury as we're meant to call it now. You tried giving fluid, but it doesn't seem to change things round, and somebody suggests that frusamide is used to kickstart the kidney, on the basis that renal failure when someone is peeing has a better outcome than renal failure when they're not. This group went away with a very specific question and looked in three separate databases to see what they could come up with. There were over a thousand potential articles which were screened down to 329 that might have something of interest. Those abstracts and in some extent the full text were gone through in detail bringing down to 19 potentially relevant papers of which there were three separate systematic reviews and they selected three further cohorts to answer the question. The real trouble was that in all of these studies there were a total of only 31 children that were analysed. The systematic reviews, which were of randomised controlled trials of frusamide versus not usually, in a variety of settings of renal failure, renal failure on dialysis, were all in adult patients. What the cohort studies of children showed was that the outcomes for kids were not hugely different than expected from the adult studies. The adult studies were actually quite convincing in that they showed hardly any benefit from frusamide. There was certainly no meaningful change of mortality, no change in the time to renal recovery. It, it might be that there was a slight reduction in the time on dialysis for those who needed it, but that wasn't terribly strong and it certainly didn't seem to stop people going on to need dialysis. There really seems to be very little indication for frusamide in the setting of acute renal injury. Really the only need for it would be if a patient was becoming symptomatic from fluid overload, in which case it might be worth trying it to relieve the symptoms of the fluid overload, but not to get the kidney started or to do anything where you think the frusamide is going to make a difference to the outcome. Now, whilst we've been dealing mainly with particular topics in particular patients, there's a background issue of what if you have a systematic review that draws together studies from all over the place, but they are a bit 
mixed up. They are heterogeneous. You might see at the bottom of the forest plot an I with a little squared sign next to it. I squared is a statistic, that is a number, that gives you a sort of semi-quantitative assessment of how much heterogeneity there is in a meta-analysis. In this setting, heterogeneity being a statistical concept of the percentage of variation that's more than you'd expect by chance alone. Next to I squared are usually two other numbers as well, tau squared and a chi squared test. Now, the I squared bit is actually relatively straightforward to interpret. It's a little bit woolly and the boundaries aren't incredibly clear, but if the number is between about 0 and 25%, then that would suggest that the only real difference between these studies, statistically speaking, is it's just chance. Between 25 and 50%, there might be a little bit more than chance variation, but unless you think that clinically the studies really are quite different, it's probably okay to take the meta-analytic summary, the, the weighted average, but just not put too much faith in it. But when you get beyond 50%, and, and certainly when you get beyond 75% in that I-squared, these studies are so different than you'd expect to be scattered around by chance that you really cannot believe them. In fact, you'd think that any sort of drawing together to give an average that you can meaningly use in a situation is really a bit pointless. And you should be thinking, is there any reason to actually do a meta-analytic summary? Now, there are some problems with I-squared. If there aren't very many studies that are under four or five, then it probably underestimates heterogeneity. And if there are loads of studies, probably more than 40 or so, then it seems to overestimate heterogeneity. And those numbers don't apply. There's the other idea that Actually, the heterogeneity there in the I-squared is itself an estimate, and the I-squared should come with a confidence interval. But if you get to the point of worrying about those, then you probably understand the whole statistics well enough to interpret the tau-squared and the chi-squared bits on your own, and you don't really need this sort of explanation to help you calculate your own prediction intervals and fully appreciate the deep stats of meta-analysis. However, for most normal people, have a look at the I-squared, in a normal sort of meta-analysis, 0 to 25 is okay. 25 to 50, you're fine with really. Over 50%, be very, very dubious. Now, we would encourage you strongly to submit your Archimedes ideas and your Archimedes reports, listen into the podcast, and give us feedback, either via our Facebook page, Twitter, or emailing the journal. We look forward to hearing from you next time. Mm-hmm.